Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what would you like in your sandwich? Would you like, wait, first of all, would you like rye bread, wheat bread, uh, white bread, pumpernickel bread, or banana bread? Uh, Do you have any sourdough? Yes, sourdough. Would you like... uh, Is it wheat sourdough? Yes. And would you like European wheat sourdough or U.S. wheat sourdough? Um, I I will like the European sweet sourdough. Okay, so you're already feeling tired. Well, yeah. This is the this is the way I feel whenever I go to a place where they do like any kind of a sandwich assembly line. Yeah, where you go in and there's there's an individual there that's going to build you a sandwich. Sometimes they have the hilarious title of sandwich artist, uh, and. And, but they are sandwich artists. Well, no, a sa- an artist doesn't ask for my input on the art. I'm just like, hey, give me, <laughs> give me one art, and they're like, here's the art, and I'm like, that's great. You're so creative in your creation of that. You don't go into an art gallery, and then there's an artist standing there, and uh, he's like, so do you like uh, surrealist, or are you, you know, there's there's right. none of that. So. You go through this line. You have to pick the bread. You have to pick which vegetables. You have to pick which meat if you're going with meat or which fake meat if you don't want to go with that. Cheese. Uh, cheese options, different dressings. Um, you, you want to heat it up or not? Do you want to cut in half? I mean, it, it just it goes on and on. And by the end of it, you just feel exhausted because you've had to make so many decisions. And generally for a very limited, uh, you know, payoff. Uh, especially if you're on some of the at some of the more uh, you know mainstream sandwich uh, shops. I like this analogy of the way that we move through life, right? Because that's yeah. what it feels like. You feel like you got a backup of people behind you, right? And you're getting rushed through your decisions. A nonstop sandwich line for a really crappy sub. That's life, right? <laughs> that, that is possibly. Possibly. Hopefully you have a sandwich artist yes. who, who could perhaps liven it up a little bit. Um but this actually Gnaws on us. These, these constant choices, these being bombarded by what we have to move through every day just to, to sort of get things done. Yeah. It's called, uh, decision fatigue. And it's a real thing. And it's a real thing. And it's, uh, it's been, uh, sort of making the rounds, uh, recently, uh, over the past few years, but, uh, but especially in the last few days because, uh, and by the time this airs, the last few weeks because mm-hmm. there was a New York Times article about it and it forced everyone to reexamine their lives. And the decisions, the multiple decisions that make up every hour of the day. And what it's doing to us yeah. on an on a emotional and physical level. It's really interesting. So we, we are going to draw from this article uh, called Do You Suffer From Decision Fatigue from the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I recommend that um, you guys check it out. It's pretty long, but yep, it's definitely worth pages. it. Yeah, no. no, like 10 <laughs> or so. Um I mean, I thought it was interesting that the article pointed out that the word decide shares the same etymological root with the word homicide. Oh, yeah. Meaning that on a linguistic level, we realize that we're killing off all of our other options, which sort of float away into some sort of unseen parallel universe for us. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like every time we make a decision, we're... Uh, we're we're extrapolating. Mm-hmm. We're uh, imagining a, a future in which we make the choice. Be it something like, I wonder what would happen if I decide to go with the rye bread uh, or if I go with the, the plain bread. Well, what if I get the salad opposed to what if I get the soup? Right. And then with larger things, too, it's like, well, what if I major in uh, in English versus what if I major in pre-law? That kind of thing. Right. And, of course, you can even see instances of this in, in quantum suicide, for instance, right? Yes. Um, but, from you know, our day-to-day basis of having to deal with the minutiae, um, it's really easy to start to overinflate the importance of a choice, right? 
because we can thank, you know, all of the storylines and books and movies for helping us to feel that every single choice we make could alter the reality that we are living. Well, but the thing is, it, it kind of could. It, it may not. I know, <laughs> but, but mostly a, probably not. Right. And well, that's the problem with it is we, we're not omniscient beings. Right. Right. But but there is, you know, it's like the butterfly effect. Yeah. Which is okay. uh, which relates to chaos theory, um, which uh, is on, on the surface, the idea that, say, a butterfly flaps its wings on one side of the world and uh, the cascading effects from that one little um, uh, action will cause a hurricane on the other side of the world. And this was created by a weatherman, right? Um, what is his meteorologist, name? Yeah, yeah meteorologist. Uh, working with computer models. Um, yeah. Okay, Edward For, Lawrence, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just a theory, right? Obviously, the we we don't know if the the action of a butterfly's wings. Is, well, no, it's just more of an, an a, elegant example, you know. Yeah, of of how this works, of how chaos theory works. Um, but again, you apply your day to day decisions, and you can really start to perhaps overweigh them. Yeah, there's a great line from uh, Cormac McCarthy. Uh, I believe this one is in uh, No Country for Old Men. Where a character says, "Every moment in your life is tur- is a turning, and every one a choosing. Somewhere you made a choice, and um, all followed to this. The accounting is scrupulous. The shape is drawn. No line can be erased. I had no belief in your ability to move a coin to your bidding. How could you? A person's path through the world seldom changes, and even more seldom will it change abruptly. And the shape of your path was visible from the beginning. There's a lot of this kind of thing in Cormac McCarthy with him ruminating over." Um, the effects of choices and the choices we make. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a there's a part in um, uh, all the pretty horses where a character is uh, there are two characters and they're about to m- make a decision regarding a, a third character mm-hmm. and uh, and one of the characters turns to the other and says, you know, uh, every time you do something stupid in your in your life, you can always trace it back to one decision, and that decision is never like the stupid decision, but it's the decider. Uh, in this timeline, it's where you split off from the timeline where you wouldn't make this really dumb choice mm-hmm. versus the one where you do. Uh, well, but and this explains why we drive ourselves crazy yeah, exactly. with because, choices. Because in retrospect, we can always trace it back and say that was, you know, it was insignificant. But what have I done the other thing? Uh, it's I mean, it's a big part of grief, too. Like mm-hmm. whenever uh, someone dies um, that, that we care about, we can always trace it back to these little insignificant moments and be like, well, what if that had gone the other way? And, you know, what if it had? Uh, it, it, it's still an ins- insignificant moment out of many insignificant moments. It just sort of happens to loop into a very elaborate um, timeline of events uh, 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 when we look back at it from the present. So, so yeah, it's easy to get strung out over choices uh, to the point where we end up fretting over which bread to order with our sandwich, even though generally this is not the kind of thing that uh, spirals out of control. Right, one thing that you wouldn't yeah. normally worry about. Um, the New York Times article, again, the, uh, Do You Suffer From Decision Fatigue, says that we have a finite store of mental energy for exercising self-control. And this was basically witnessed time and again through a series of experiments carried out by social psychologist Roy Baumeister. And we're going to talk a lot about some of the experiments that that he and his colleagues undertook. Um, It is the reason why otherwise reasonable people do illogical things, right? From flying off the handle in rage to buying junk food when you didn't mean to. Or flying off the handle in rage at junk food. Right, right. Slapping that junk food upside its head. Um, To spending big bucks on stuff that you you regret later. You think, why in the world did I do that? Yeah. Impulse buys. That kind of thing. Yeah, impulse buys. It's because, as Baumeister says, you are experiencing ego depletion. Yeah, to, to, to run some of this down again, it's it to really simplify it, it's kind of like the idea that the mind is this muscle. And anyone who ever, has ever worked out 
uh, knows, um, you know, with, with weights or anything, knows that there's like this whole idea of, you know, it's like reps versus weight. Are you going to, are you going to pick up a 10 pound weight like 10 times? Mm -hmm. or are you going to pick up a hundred pound weight once? That sort of thing. Right. Again, I'm not a, a weightlifter, so I, I may be, uh, this may not be a perfect uh, example, but, but still, it's like if you pick up a small weight enough times, your arms will get as tired as if you picked up something really heavy once. Well, you know what? And, and as a side note on the mind body connection, uh, did you know that if you were exercising and say doing reps mm -hmm. and, and, and really focusing on your arms that day, that when you go to sleep at night, the part of the brain that controls the functions of your arms is actually going to be much more active in sleep than oh. the other parts of your brain. So there, there's this connection, this idea that energy expended is being manifested in the body. And again, this is, this is borne out by a lot of Baumeister's research, uh, which is really cool. So if I have to go through a line and choose every single option that goes into the creation of my sandwich, and then I have to make a decision about like who to fire at work or something later on, mm -hmm. uh, I'm picturing like a big wig in, you know, New York going through a sandwich line here. Okay. Um, cigar in hand. Yeah. So let's just do that. Let's, let's give him a cigar. Yeah. Let's give him a cigar as well. Yeah. By, by the, by the time that you have, picked out your sandwich, mm -hmm. you have you made all these choices, you're less um, prepared to make a big choice later in the day. Well, that's the problem yeah. is that when you've been bombarded by all these little decisions, by the time four o'clock rolls around, you do not want to make the big decision that you have to make for the day. You do not want to have to push the red button, so to speak, yeah. because you are seriously going to be incapacitated because your mental energy is already going to fold up on top of itself and say, I want to batten down the hatches. I want to make the safest choice for myself, which is yeah. not always the right choice. Right. And I don't want to think about it that much. Um, you, is, like, like you would want to be the kind of person who is like uh, someone's like, hey, you want to I need you to come help me move furniture. And you're like, great. I'm going to go lift some weights first. Like that wouldn't make any sense. Right. Well, but you could immediately before. Right. Right. I understand what you're saying is that you don't want to fatigue yourself in the muscle. I mean, the brain is like a muscle and you, and you don't mm -hmm. necessarily want to do that. Um, but I think it's really interesting because it does explain why we do what we do. Uh, Baumeister says no matter how rational and high minded you try to be, you can't make a decision after decision without paying a biological price. It's different from ordinary physical fatigue. You're not consciously aware of being tired, but you're low on mental energy. The more choices you make throughout the day, the harder each one becomes for your brain. Eventually, it looks for shortcuts, usually in either uh, one of two very different ways. One shortcut is to become reckless. Okay. Okay. To act impulsively instead of expending the energy to first think through the consequences. Um, and, and they use this example in the article. Sure. Tweet that photo. What could go wrong? Right. <laughs> uh, the other shortcut is the ultimate energy saver. Do nothing. Uh, instead of agonizing over decisions, avoid any choice. Ducking a decision often creates bigger problems in the long run, but for the moment, it eases the mental strain. You're, you're basically deferring mental anguish. Yeah. And you had talked, you had said something about a Japanese proverb. Yeah, effect, I believe right? there's an old Japanese proverb that basically says, by by doing nothing, all problems are solved. Mm -hmm. By by refusing to come to a decision, you're solving that problem one way or another, but right. probably not in the way that is beneficial to you. Right. And I'm sure yeah. we've all been there at one point or another and understand that. So. Mm -hmm. Um, a bunch of studies have basically carried out, um, this, this, um, idea that ego depletion and its effect on willpower is actually pretty stunning. Um, initially these studies would focus on food, right? Because mm -hmm. how, wh what better way could you study someone's willpower and ability to self-censure than, than by through... throwing a bunch of donuts at them? Exactly. Yeah. Literally throwing them at them. <laughs> 
but there was a postdoc fellow in Baumeister's lab, and she had an epiphany about the laboriousness of all those choices uh, after going through the process of registering for gifts for her upcoming wedding. She oh. found that she was incredibly exhausted just when she went to go and, and register for gifts. Yeah, weddings are a huge um, suck on the whole yeah. uh, decision uh, portion of the brain because it's it's nonstop decisions beforehand and then afterwards too as you're deciding uh you know which um like which picture you're going to pick out for your album that's that's well, why you end up with situations where people don't get their wedding album uh, actually completed till you, you know years after the marriage or, or uh you know begins or after the marriage ends yeah yeah well and i will tell you too that the first time i went to go register with my husband i i kind of had a not a meltdown in which i was crying but i was <laughs> like you know we need to leave I don't know what towels to get. I don't, I never considered towels. I never yeah. considered this. I'm, I'm picturing you being physically removed in tears from Crate and Barrel. By security. Yeah. 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 I mean, I can't go there anymore, which is fine, <laughs> but I can shop online. Um, but basically she had a hunch here. So the lab set out to replicate a sort of quasi department store of wedding gifts and they had two groups peruse the offerings. Group one had to make a decision about what one item they could keep at the end of the experiment. Okay. okay. Group two was asked to give their opinions on the products and if they had ever used similar products in the last six months. So group one has to make a decision. Group two, not so much. Okay. Um, both groups were then given a classic impulse control test. I love this. Holding your hand in ice water for as long as you can. <laughs> so group one, the deciders, they lasted for just 28 seconds. But the non-deciders, 67 seconds on average. So mm. almost double, you know, this this physical manifestation was found in this, this very simple imp- impulse control test. Now, they did this over and over again. So the more decisions you make, the less uh, um, control you have over holding your hand in water. Right. So okay. it's not just that you're making decisions, but your actual physical being is is going to be decided by this as well, right? So huh. it's not the the abstract you know, becomes a concrete thing. So when G. Gordon Liddy did the famous thing with the um, the cigarette lighter under his palm, mm-hmm. he was basically saying, try me. I haven't made a decision in weeks. You know, it's like he's got, it's a, uh, never mind. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> um, I'll go with it. But, but no, anyway, this is, this, is, this is an illuminating study. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was a sea change, a sea change in studying the, the ego uh, depletion effect because it really had this idea of no matter what it was tied to, um, you know, these choices could have an effect on your willpower, even if it was just something that wasn't that important. Mm-hmm. Um, so they began to do this over and over again. And they even saw this in car buyers, right? There was an experiment in which they had real customers spending their own money and they had to choose, for instance, among four styles of gear shift, gear shift knobs, 13 kinds of wheel rims, 25 configurations of the engine and gearbox and a palette of 56 colors for the interior. See, I'm already, I'm, feeling fatigued. <laughs> and um, as they started picking out features, customers would like carefully weigh the choices at first, but then fatigue would set in and they'd start to go into default options. Yeah. Like, okay. Well, you know, essentially at the end of, of this uh, exercise, they were like, okay, give me whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they left the dealership by paying an extra $2,000 in options that they probably didn't want. But because they had this barrage of choices put forth, which is sort of a, it's a typical sales technique, right? Especially yeah. at car dealerships. Yeah, they, I mean, the nefarious tactic of the hard sell. Like yeah. get somebody in a room and do not let them leave until they make a decision or, or rather make the decision you want them to make. Right. And at this point, too, you've probably put a lot of research and time into 
finding the car that you want, negotiating it, mm-hmm. um, and then trying to meet out these details about what you want the final product to look like. You know, you've oh. probably been there for five hours yeah, yeah. and you're like, fine, if you will let me leave this dealership with my car, I will pay $2,000. That's essentially what you're saying without even knowing that you're saying it. There's a, I actually ran across a, another study that also involves, uh, this one involves cake, uh, as well, uh, uh, which is, which is always fun. And this was a Stanford University, uh, graduate school of business test where they had, um, they had two groups. Uh, in, uh, one, in one group, the subjects were asked to remember a one digit number which is pretty easy. And then the other group was asked to, to uh, remember a seven-digit number. And uh, then they were asked to walk down a hallway to where they would have to report this number. Mm-hmm. And along the way, uh, coworkers would come to them and offer them either a big slice of chocolate cake or a bowl of fruit salad. And uh, by, by a huge, uh, huge percentage, uh, those who were trying to remember the, seven, the seven-digit numbers picked the cake over the fruit salad. So the idea was that the people trying to remember the seven-digit uh, number were already taxing their brain enough mm-hmm. to where they they lacked sufficient mental energy to stand up to the temptation of the cake, and therefore their impulse control was compromised. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they're having to remember a seven-digit number. There just wasn't enough gas in the tank to resist cake. Also, I it should note that again in this article that's one hundred pages long. Uh, yeah. Kidding ten. Uh, there are. Instances of these studies over and over again, and yeah. we're not obviously going to talk about all of them. But all of them in- involve cake. It's weird. Uh, yeah, they, a lot of sweets in these studies, uh, but they do bear out this familiar idea that you know your willpower is going to be greatly affected, and um, so much so that there's something called the Mardi Gras effect, and we're going to get to that right after this break. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of Tomorrow, and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at Curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. And we're back. The Mardi Gras effect. So let's let's get down to it. This involves beads and streets lined with people and partial nudity. Partial nudity and a string of parades mm-hmm. and and spicy food, right? Mm, yes. Okay. Good. To the degree that it is a metaphor. Okay. For this idea that you could exert better willpower later if you indulge yourself with something pleasurable now. This okay. is the idea that Baumeister and, and, and his colleagues had. So to, to refresh, it's uh, with Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras immediately uh, precedes Lent, mm-hmm. which is a period of of fasting or what? It, well, it, you're giving up something. Right. You choose what you're going to give up. For a lot of people, this may be alcohol um, or it may be something kind of weeny like, uh, oh, I'm going to give up fried foods or using the word uh, cloaca in a podcast. Oh, no. Why would you do that? Well, that's that's what we're doing next year. Get ready. <sighs> that's the thing. In accordance with the Mardi Gras effect, mm-hmm. though, uh, before we gave up using the word cloaca in a podcast, we would have an all out Cloaca blowout podcast edition where it was right. just nonstop discussion of so cloaca. So it'd just be like cloaca and articles, right? Yeah. So the A, yeah, and yeah. then cloaca, yeah. Exactly. So Which yeah. would make for a fascinating podcast. <laughs> yeah, it would. But the, but the idea with Mardi Gras is you have the big old party because you're going to be good mm-hmm. for uh, over a month afterwards. Right. With occasional breaks for feast days. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Beef steaks? Feast days. Oh, feast days. Not okay. beef steaks. I was like, beef steak? No, no, no. How does that come into the equation? There are different feast days where they're like holy celebrated days, so it's all right to break your Lent fast or uh, whatever. Oh, well, see, yeah. now I don't know a lot about this Lent thing, but that just seems like cheating. 
Well, see, my uh, my mother in law uh, thought the same thing. Mm-hmm. She was like, she was like, I don't know about these feast days. Then, and I'm like, but, but, I, but a, a priest told me this. This is this is legit. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but yes, they so they you know in this lab they took the same tact, right? Like mm-hmm. we're going to go ahead and try to get these groups to indulge. And so what they did is they gave two groups milkshakes. Sounds good, right? Okay. Um, one was tasteless low fat glop. Absolute glop, right? Glop. But a, a glop. But a milkshake nonetheless. But tasteless. Tasteless. Okay. The other one was decadent and calorie laden and, and yummy, okay. right? So the researchers expected that the decadent milkshakes would perform better on willpower tasks, right? Uh, so the result is that both groups performed well on these, these tasks that they were given okay. after they consumed this. And it was a head scratcher until they figured out that the glucose was mitigating the ego depletion and sometimes completely reversing it, both of the milkshakes. So basically what you had is you had these two groups and they were going through similar to the other study where they, they were given choices and their willpower was being eroded. They took a break. They had the milkshakes. They came back to do some more difficult tasks. They both performed really well. Okay. So it, it, they thought, oh, this, this, uh, this experiment went terribly awry. It didn't meet our expectations. But what they figured out is that it was the actual glucose in the milkshake. It didn't really matter whether or not it was calorie laden or delicious or, you know, it was the, the actually the, the food itself okay. that was tripping the mind. Whoa. Yeah. So again and again in lab experiments dealing with self-control exercises, researchers found that people naturally gravitated towards sugary glu- glucose-filled snacks when given the choice between, say, like potato chips and candy. It's and, and it's really effective, right? But it's a temporary fix. Okay. And uh, researchers also took dieters, which is the, the, the classic group that you would want to study, right? Right. 45 women, what they did is they showed them pictures of food and they scanned their brains. Okay. And then they made them watch a, a comedy, a okay. film. Okay. And they made them suppress their laughter. Just seems, you know, okay. Um, not, not exactly cruel, but what they were trying to induce was ego depletion because it takes a lot of mental energy to try to do something that's, is coming to you naturally. Right? right. Right. And also you're, you're robbing yourself of a little reward center ding, right? Because we all know that laughter in, in comedy is, is something that lights up our brains. So afterward, they showed these, the, the group food images again and they scanned their brains again. And what they found is that there's more activity in the nucleus accumbens, which is the reward, the reward center and less activity in the amygdala, which processes emotions and control impulses. So their ability to exercise uh, willpower was compromised. And they oh. could see this in the scan, right? And then the researchers wondered what a shot of glucose could do if they added that to the scenario. And they found that the brain changes were completely reversed, which is what I talked about earlier. Uh, so, again, this link is borne out in the scan as well. It's not just, uh, it, it sounds like a big excuse, right? Like I've, I've had to make so many choices today and that's why I did this. I think you call this the, the devil made me do it, uh, rationale. But yeah. in fact, you do see real evidence that this is some, something that is working at play and, uh, really eroding our confidence and our ability to make decisions. And making, yeah, wise decisions too. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like I, w- I was thinking it in terms of the TV show Mad Men, kind of like a Don Draper effect, mm-hmm. where Don Draper has a lot of decisions to make about uh, who he's going to fire and who he's going to be mean to, generally Peggy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 
and, and, and so he makes all these decisions. And at the end of the, every show, it's pretty much Don Draper doing something really stupid. There you go. Yeah. You just crack this, the, uh, the writer's secret right there. Yeah. Yeah. If only he had a little glucose shot. Exactly. Then he would just be, you know, well, he, ha- he has multiple, multiple shots uh, throughout the, the uh, early, late morning, uh, afternoon and uh, evening. But it just not glucose. Yeah, not the glucose ones. Uh, but they saw this in judges, too. They saw this uh, in an Israeli parole board. Uh, they studied the, the judges there and they found that they would grant parole much more so in the morning than in the afternoon. And so if you had a 10 o'clock case, you were pretty lucky, right? You probably would get parole. Yeah, because they're putting more thought into it. They're making more in thoughtful, informed decisions. Right. They're not as inundated. At 3 o'clock, sorry, you're probably <laughs> not going to get parole. And uh, they apply this glucose test to them as well. So they started giving them little snacks throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And whoa, right after the snack, guess what? You were going to get parole. So it's pretty amazing to see a lot of this in play. And, and that's really so important. So bring too, cupcakes right? to your parole. Bring, <laughs> bring is, the, uh, <laughs> is the take home here. A, a decadent smoothie, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. But the reason that the, in case you're wondering why they weren't granting parole is because this really was the safest choice for them because they were essentially deferring the decision because they could say to themselves, okay, I'm going to batten down the hatches on my mental energy because I know that this case is going to come up again in six months, two months, a year. And I can decide then. This feels like the safer choice. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, this seems like a solid. I mean, I'm taking you know outside of a, a criminal, uh, you know, injustice uh, scenario. The idea of uh, deferring the the choice of of sort of trusting another body with your choices uh, seems like a a good way to deal with uh, decision fatigue. Like yeah. instead of going stepping through every process uh, and getting the sandwich just the way you want it or think you might want it. To be able just to point and say, I will have the number three. Yeah. Well, and that's your decisions. Yes, and you're trusting decisions. your sandwich artist or whoever to give you the type <laughs> of sandwich you would want. And of course, that that um, that sort of makes a lot of us knee jerk, especially Americans, because we like our choices yeah, we so love much, right? Choices, yeah. Right. Even with our most mundane things like, okay, what sort of crappy sandwich am I going to get? Yeah, I should have complete free reign to just just have no vegetables at all, just meat. Yeah. 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 And there have been studies that suggest that less choices make more sense for us. There's, you know, less fatigue that we're experiencing. Um, Perhaps we're happier with less choices. I tell you one example of uh, like in my case, when it comes to listening to music, I tend to absorb a lot of my music through mixed podcasts. So to a certain extent, instead of saying, I wonder what albums I'm going to listen to for the next hour or two hours or which individual tracks I'm going to choose to listen to. Instead, I'm going to trust uh, this individual DJ to give me a nice assortment of tracks that I wouldn't. And that way I don't have to I don't have to find out who these artists are. I don't have to to go out and discover new things. I will let this guy discover things and deliver them to me in a as a sonic meal. Huh. So yeah. and, and that's, this person is vetted for you, right? Um, so it feels like, okay, I can cede my control over to this person. Well, either it's somebody that I trust already, like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a DJ I follow, or, uh, since a lot of these are, you know, they tend to be podcast properties. So, um, it may say it's like the Solid Steel radio show or, um, like a body tonic podcast or any of these other music podcasts. There'll be multiple DJs that come through. Mm-hmm. So then there's like a larger level. Am I trusting that particular podcast to give me a DJ I can trust who will then give me music I can trust? Okay, so this actually um, is similar to a jam study, believe it or not, or jelly for, for other folks who don't prefer yes. jam. 
And, oh. and not as in kick out the jams, but as in spread on the jams. As in PB&J jam. Yes. Right. Sheena Iyengar, a professor of business at Columbia University, conducted a study in 1995 in which she and her research assistant set up a booth of samples of Wilkin and Sons jams. Seems innocent enough, right? Right. Every few hours, they switched from offering a selection of 24 jams to a group of six jams. On average, customers tasted two jams, regardless of the size of the assortment. And each person received a coupon good for $1 off. Okay. The, the really interesting part of this is that 60% of customers were drawn to the large assortment, while only 40% stopped by the small one. But 30% of the people who had sampled from the small assortment decided to buy jam as opposed to only 3% of those people confronted with a big assortment of jelly. Huh. So that, again, here this here's this idea that you have this wide assortment, you have all of these choices, and you're going to back away. Whereas you cull it down a little bit, all of a sudden your sales go from 3% to 30%. So yeah, so like with me, it's like I would rather choose one of 18 podcasts uh-huh. versus one out of you know several hundred DJs versus like one artist out of, you know, hundreds and hundreds represented in those mixes. It's just easier to refine it down. And I guess in a, in a, in a much larger uh, way, people make these choices when they choose various uh, religions, philosophies, mm-hmm. um, political ideologies, mm-hmm. because you're sort of saying, I want, instead of going through and customizing your preferences, like the sandwich, you will just say, you know what? Uh, give me the Catholic sandwich. Give me the... Um, Tea party sandwich. Give me the, uh, you know, you give me the, give the Zen Buddhist sandwich. Uh, give me the the Hindu sandwich. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you, you're you're saying, give me those set of uh, of preordained preferences, mm-hmm. uh, and let me take that on because I I generally like the shape of that sandwich and the the, the look of it. So I'm going to trust the 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 various factors in that sandwich to do me right. Right, right. So if you're like, oh, okay, yeah, give me that atheist sandwich because that that works, right? Yeah, and. And I'm going to run with that model. Yeah. But and it's. But then some, the only thing is, what if you get that sandwich and you really don't like jalapenos? So do you learn to like jalapenos? Do you, maybe you, know? you do. I mean, again, this is it's really interesting if you apply it to the way that we we uh, wield our choices in the world and mm-hmm. why you sometimes look back and think, well, how, how did I make that choice? That seems so rational in the moment. Yeah. But now it seems like, how, how could I have made that choice? Or what if the, the sandwich ends up containing, say, um, you know, baby seal or condor patties, you know, like some sort of endangered species. And you're, but you're like, oh, but this, the rest of the sandwich is so good. I just accepted the bad with the good for the sake of the well, overall sandwich and not having just, to make many choices. You've just minimized your choice to witness relocation, my friend. Oh, okay. You better put your mustache on. <laughs> but no wonder, you know, we get ourselves in a tizzy because did you know? That three to four hours of our day is spent in some sort of state of desire. Okay. Okay. Baumeister again, this guy, his group gave pre-programmed Blackberries to more than 200 people for a week. The phones went off at random intervals, prompting the people to report whether they were currently experiencing some sort of desire or had recently felt a desire. They collected more than 10,000 momentary reports. uh, And this is from Morning Tonight. And the results suggested that people spend between three and four hours a day resisting desire or some sort of urge. And uh, as the New York Times article put it, if you tapped four or five people at any random moment of the day, one of them would be using willpower to resist a desire. And the most common desires eat and sleep, right? Makes sense. <laughs> Followed by leisure activities. Uh-huh. 
and then followed by the urge to have sex. Okay. It's three to four hours of this. I, it seems like a lot. It does. I, I mean, obviously, that's not you're not in in constant three to four hours state of of desire. Yeah, but that, it, it does be... it does tie in rather nicely with the you know the the, the idea that that the desire is one of the roots of suffering in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, well, this is the, yeah, the yeah. this idea, this temptation that that sort of throws us off, and that's why our old amygdala is ticking up there, mm-hmm. so to speak, trying to keep us uh, on the straight and narrow. Well, that's well, there you go. That's uh, so that's pretty fascinating, and I, it is one of those things that definitely forces you to take another look at your life and look at the the numerous decisions that fill it and uh, and and perhaps figure out ways where we can cut down on the the number of decisions we're taxing our brain with at the expense of the decisions we really need to make so that's the truth that's yeah. that that's sort of my takeaways like try to eat more consistently throughout the day right mm-hmm. so i can make better decisions try to make the decisions early in the day yeah and uh and uh, I don't know who else. And believe what other people tell you to listen to and uh, and watch, you know? Find- <laughs> Get some good, vetted people to make some decisions for you. I mean, seriously, it's like it saves so much time and energy if you can just find, like, a good DJ or a good, uh, or maybe there, you know, it's a, it's a particular blogger you agree with or a movie critic. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, like when it comes to finding out whether you want to watch uh, Rango or not, it's nice to be able to just turn to Ebert and see like, all right, Ebert, what do you think of it? You give it four stars? Okay, I'll give it a no, shot. No, that's true. Instead of yeah. sticking in uh, Google and getting like 10 different results yeah, and going muck through, like, through. Yeah, and mucking through a bunch of them and saying like, well, I don't know, who's this guy? Should I vet him? He likes this, you know, just, just pick somebody you like and go with it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. That, that's the answer to life right there. Well, hey, we have some listener mail. Uh, we kind of neglected it in the last uh, few podcasts because we either I either forget to print it out or we end up going a little too long and don't really have time for it. Uh, and maybe we went too long today. I don't know. We'll find out. We have uh, some email here from a listener by the name of Jonathan. Jonathan writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I'm catching up on your podcast, having started listening to it after listening to the other How Stuff Works podcast. Over 100 podcasts, but I listen a lot on the road. I listened to the one on subliminal messaging today. I think it's your 50th newest. Uh, when talking about smells, it reminded me of a store I bet you would love. There is a great outdoor mall in San Diego, California called Horton Plaza. There is a cinnamon roll bakery. Uh, was bought out by Cinnabon, unfortunately. Uh, but there's an exhaust vent from inside the kitchen that pumps cinnamon roll smell into the walkway in front of the store. That's diabolical. Maybe not subliminal as much as pure evil, but was always a, a great, always such a clever idea. Now, if you walk a few more doors down, there is a Sparky's House of Glue. Close your eyes, and you can appreciate really appreciate the smell wafting from their fan. Delicious rendered horse paste. And um, <laughs> so, uh, so that's that's fascinating. Um, and of course, I think we discussed that the cinnamon bun uh, smell is is really um, powerful when it comes to controlling people. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's it's the siren song of yeah. of uh, temptation. Yeah. One would have to make a Ulysses pack mm-hmm. to uh, to cover it. Which, by the way, uh, if you if you're listening to this podcast and you have not listened to our one um, uh, the, the the accompanying podcast that we did on procrastination, uh, stop putting off putting it off and listen to that yeah, one because there's yeah. a lot of crossover between the two. It's a nice companion yeah. piece. Uh, we also heard from a listener by the name of Trent, and Trent writes in, and um, he has some he has some very interesting things to say about our religion in space episode. He says, hey, guys, I've uh, actually been meaning to send this email for a while, and I'm only just getting around to it. There you go, procrastination again. Um, I enjoyed your podcast on religion in space and thought Robert's comment on taking the best bits from different religions very interesting. Uh, However, I do see some problems. The main one being, 
What if there are parts of a religion that may not seem to be beneficial according to currently held ideas, and it isn't much later that it turns out to be quite beneficial? I am thinking of one example in particular. I am a Jehovah's Witness, and we take the Bible's instruction to abstain from blood very literally, including the refusal of blood transfusions. For years, we have been looked down uh, upon by not only the medical community, but people in general, because of our refusal to accept, accept blood transfusions. However, in part due to the witness, uh, witnesses, huge advances in bloodless surgery and medicine have been made, and it is now accepted by many medical practitioners th- uh, that it has many advantages and in uh, almost all cases is more beneficial than a traditional blood transfusion. Which leads me to the next point of the email. Um, a show suggestion. Uh, I think a podcast on bloodless surgery would be interesting. Huh. Um, so anyway, uh, he does bring up an interesting point and one that um, I've kind of thought of too and think because uh, to, to refresh, I kind of have often play with this idea of religion, uh, the religion buffet where mm-hmm. you go through and of course you end up making a lot of choices in this. Uh, it's kind of like a I was about to say, here, yeah. here we go. We're at the buffet line again. Yeah, where you go through and you're like, I like this from this religion, this from that religion, or I like these ideas from this given um, view on the world, and I'm mm-hmm. going to adopt these and leave this. Um, but, yeah, on one hand, you're making a lot of decisions in this. So you're, so you're taxing your uh, decision-making ability. And, uh, indeed, it's kind of like we were talking about, uh, but by choosing, I can avoid the, 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 uh, the jalapenos. Uh, that maybe I don't want. Mm-hmm. But what if I really need jalapenos and I don't realize it? What if there's something, what if in, in picking and choosing from different uh, uh, faiths and philosophies, what if I'm neglecting to get the things my body actually needs? What if I'm like the kid who refuses to put vegetables on his sandwich just because he doesn't like them, when really that scurvy kid needs vegetables like nobody's business? I don't and, know. Well, I, I'm thinking about it. I'm yeah. thinking about it. And, and the, the great spaghetti monster. Maybe I need some garlic bread with my spaghetti monster. There you go. Are you familiar with spaghetti? I, I'm familiar. Basically, it's like a made-up uh, deity. Yes, yes. As opposed to all the other deities, which are not made up. Well, there. yes, yes. It was recently in the news, but that's for another time, I suppose. Yeah. So, hey, if you have anything uh, that you want to share with us, that you've been putting off sharing with us, um, and the, or that you can't quite decide uh, on uh, sharing with us, then... Uh, Get in touch with us. We are on Twitter and Facebook. You'll find us as Blow the Mind on both of those. So, you know, go on, add us as your friend, follow us. We'll keep you updated on what we're podcasting about, what we're thinking about podcasting about, and you can help us decide. That's right. And you can always send us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.